we found that one in India compared to other cities in, in India, women are actually traveling lesser than men. Okay, um, so the per capita trip rate is is lower. So that was one. But having said that, when we looked at different modes, we found that women constituted about 60% of all walk trips. That means they are the majority of your pedestrians on the road, but they don't only walk on your main roads, you will find them in your neighborhoods. Hi, I'm Sonal Shah. I'm the Executive Director for the Center of Sustainable and Equitable Cities, as well as the founder of the Urban Catalyst. And you're listening to Understanding the Future Podcast. Hello everyone, I am Puneet Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Centre for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future podcast. I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realised that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused. With Understanding the Future podcast, I interact with experts, entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground. We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India. And join it through the show note. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future. I'm your host, Punit Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities. And today we have with us Ms. Roman Shah. She is the Executive Director at the Center for Sustainable and Equitable Cities. Today, she will help us in understanding the future of gender, transport and cities. Welcome to the show, Sonu. Hi, Punit. Thank you for having me um, and really look forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm excited about our conversation as well today. uh, I think before we come to our topic about gender, transport, and cities, uh, let's try to break it down for someone who's not from this field and get just the basic outlook on the line. Why is transport important in any city? So we do know that uh, transport and our mobility systems form the backbone of our cities, right? And and without an efficient, seamless, affordable mobility system. How do we move from one place to another in order to pursue education, economic activities, meet our friends, interact um, interact with uh, others in public spaces? So transport is actually the fulcrum, if you will, that that can really allow people to participate in urban life. I, I absolutely agree, and I think it's it's very important on. The lines to also look on uh, at the stuff that uh, are we only talking about in public or are we also talking about private? How are we trying to segregate transport as a 
whole concept uh, when we look at it from city's perspective? Uh, no, so at this point, we are not. When I was talking about the mobility system, I was thinking about any mode of transport that one might use. But either one walks, one cycles, one uses buses, trains, metro, your two-wheeler, um, or your four-wheeler as well, right? So, but over the years, and we we have realized that using personal motor vehicles is not really sustainable for our planet, right? And therefore, there is an emphasis on how can we use more sustainable modes of transport um, that then contribute and cater to different groups of people. And, uh, okay, sustainable transport, we are talking about more of public transport as well as electrical vehicles now. But what do we mean by different types of people what are we how are we relating gender and equity on those lines with this whole subject over here yeah so maybe i'll take a step back and kind of talk a little bit about how transportation planning as a discipline or as a practice has evolved as well is that in you know with modern urban planning the goal of a mobility system was to reach us as fast as possible from point A to point B. So speed became the criteria for thinking and about our mobility systems. But when we think about transport, we really think about why am I traveling? I am traveling to access a certain good or a service, right? So I mean, I, and if accessibility is the criteria, then that opens up a wide range of transportation modes. That's why you begin to think about not only uh, not only cars, but we also begin to think about walking. We also begin to think about cycling. We also begin to think about rickshaws um, and so on and so forth. Now, when you start thinking about access, if access becomes that that point, and we also begin to ask this question it is access for whom right and and here i'm kind of you know i'm going to come back to some data because i think it's all data kind of helps crystallize many of these things so uh, in asia in urban asia if you look at at our different groups of people you we have able-bodied men in the age of 15 to 59 years this one group to which our mobility systems, whether consciously or subconsciously, has catered to, constitute only 33% of the population. Now, when we look at other kinds of users, so women and girls, who constitute a majority of this, are close to 50%. And then when you look at infants, so these can be male infants as well, toddlers, adolescents, elderly, um, other gender minorities, persons with disabilities, these these constitute close to 67% of our population. Yeah. So then the first question that one really asks is who are we designing? Or who are we planning our mobility systems for? Mm-hmm. Right? Because, because on one hand, and you might also say that 
you know, Sunam, these are very disparate groups to put together in one. Sure, because there are going to be, there are some common needs to them and there are some distinctive and unique needs and both of which have to be acknowledged. But, for example, creating a traffic calm street is going to benefit multiple groups of people, infants, toddlers, elderly, caregivers, right? So there are certain strategies that work for them. And that's why I like to put this data point is that by not catering to the 67% of the population, our mobility systems are actually not optimizing their full potential. Yeah, so, so this, this is the first entry point. Then I'm going to come to the second. And, and therefore, I will also say we don't only talk about gender. We talk about gender equality and social inclusion, which allows us to think about different other groups as well. Right, like I pointed out before. Coming to a second point, which I think a lot of, um, um, you know, it might be a more mainstream economic development perspective, where I think we know this data point um, quite well, is that McKinsey, McKinsey came out with this data point which said that if women were to participate in the workforce at par with men, we could add $12 trillion to a global GDP by 2025, right? And, and so again, you're saying, what is the link to mobility? Well, creating inclusive, gender inclusive mobility system can allow women to participate at a level playing field in, in the economy along with other aspects as well. And then the third, third kind of lens, if you will, on, on why we need to think about different users and why we need to think about gender in that is, is what um, organizations like the UN Women uh, have, have adopted, which is a rights-based approach. Says, and, and, they, and they advocate is that women and other gender and sexual minorities and other groups should have a right to the city, right? And, and, and I think this is also quite well articulated by Shilpa Fatke when she says that particularly women have a right to loiter in the city. So how is it that by, when they, women contribute through their labor, often unpaid, to, to, to the city and its development, they have a right to loiter and enjoy and develop their capabilities as well. So at this point, there are like three perspectives on why we need to think about gender equality and social inclusion in cities broadly, of which transport constitutes a big part. Absolutely. No, this, this is quite interesting and I, I think there are, there are a lot of things I would uh, curious about because uh, you mentioned that toddlers, elders and Others in general constitute around 67 percent of. Uh, so, for, this is just a basic question to under, help me understand more of those things. That 67 percent of population or 67 percent of people traveling by public transport. 67 percent of the population. Of the population. Because 
Yeah, because then this becomes the group yeah. that becomes your demand group. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so that's that's quite high. And now when we look at it, uh, and you mentioned there are uh, so let's go step by step. You mentioned specifically that there are specific design features. So I, I might be getting a too a bit technical over here, but uh, just bear with me. Uh, so when we are talking about some of the common and distinctive design functions, what are we actually talking about? How do they differ? What do we need to take care of? And how do we need to take care of it? So um, I can start with streets. Yeah. Sure. Um, sure. And, and I can get very, very specific uh, uh, because streets are our most visible form of public space and transport yeah. as well. Uh, we have also, just to uh, share with you, Puneet, we have also created um, uh, street design guidelines that specifically look address the needs of women and girls. So happy to, um, they are on our website as well. But I'll take these to uh, give some specific examples. So when uh, I, in we, when we did some research in, in three cities in Bihar, Right. We looked at uh, their travel patterns, we constructed travel guidelines. And what we found, and this was uh, at uh, where we looked at travel for men and women about uh, between 18 to, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 50, uh, 49 years of age. Right? And what did we find? We found that one in India, compared to other cities in, in India, women are actually traveling lesser than men, okay? Um, so the per capita trip rate is, is lower. So that was one. But having said that, when we looked at different modes, we found that women constituted about 60% of all walk trips. That means they are the majority of your pedestrians on the road, but they don't only walk on your main roads, you will find them in your neighborhoods. Right, because they may take neighborhood level streets in order to go to uh, for different purposes. The second piece is women also constituted a majority of paratransit passengers. Again, about sixty percent. Right. So or this can is you a just define paratransit for people who don't know. Sure, paratransit are are um, a form of public transport with smaller vehicles. They tend to be shared. And an example will be a point-to-point -point auto rickshaw or a shared data magic yeah. or it could be um, a Vikram in some of the yeah. northern states. Yeah. So this is what they would constitute. So one of the big things that uh, we, we said is, and, and because in the three cities that we, were, we did this research in Patna, uh, Gaya and Muzaffarpur, which did not really have an effective uh, bus system, Patna more so than the other cities. Paratransit clearly played a big role. So we really focused on, on um, walking and how is it that we could improve walking infrastructure, keeping in mind women and girls. Very few women were used for cycling. So that's another gender difference that we saw in, in the modes. So for walking, the first principle that we use, like all street design guidelines do, was ensuring that there are adequate footpaths 
along your uh, major roles, right? And using a level of service approach, which says that you need an unobstructed footpath. You account for a dead zone and you account for a multi-utility zone. Now, you'll, you'll ask me, Sonal, this is the most generic thing that you do in, in any proposal. What is, what is the gender dimension? Two things. One, when a footpath is crowded, and in a context where women are a majority of pedestrians, they are disproportionately affected by poor quality of pedestrian infrastructure. Right? So it may be about them being disproportionately affected because they constitute a majority of pedestrians in the city. So that is one. Overcrowding also creates instances of harassment, right? Touching, inappropriate touching, groping, etc. That that can happen when we don't have the right um, uh, infrastructure, uh, pedestrian infrastructure. When you don't have access ramps, right? Which means that if you're a caregiver who are predominantly women, it becomes more difficult for you to constantly kind of go up and down a footpath in order to uh, in order to walk on it. Now this benefits multiple other groups, right? Yeah. It's better for infants, toddlers, senior citizens, right? Yeah. And street life for the footpath and not only for the carriageway. The fourth is thinking about your compound walls. Yeah. Do you have a high opaque compound wall? Or do you have a lower compound wall which allows more visibility and creates a safer street? Mm -hmm. Right. The fourth piece is uh, providing adequate benches. And how? Because when you have pregnant women, right, um, it really they they need they need seating spaces at more frequent intervals. Right. Again, when you provide these benches that are comfortable, will benefit the senior citizens, etc. As well. So you see that certain infrastructure ends up benefiting multiple groups. Right. Uh, and, and, and the last piece that I will certainly make is street vendors. Yes. Because, because street vendors do multiple things. Um, and our guidelines actually kind of, because a lot of the contest on our streets in the process of street design is between parking and vending. Right. And, and we, and the, and the reason that we advocate for street vending, um, apart from a livelihoods perspective, is we consider them as a part of pedestrian infrastructure for the following reasons. That one parking space, yeah, mm. which I think comes to about 12.5 square meters, mm. can co accommodate at least two street vendors. One parking space is generally dead in the day. There's no activity on that street. A street vendor in that day, two of them will attract 20 to 40 people. So you always have eyes on the street. Yeah. It activates that street edge and it provides affordable goods and services. And, and you know, we've spoken about natural surveillance, etc. So that also contributes to creating a safer environment. So this is one example in which uh, if one had to think about pedestrian infrastructure, these are the things that one could do. There is also something about traffic signals that having having longer uh, pedestrian traffic signals 
accounting for lower speeds for caregivers and senior citizens and, and children as well. Right? So some concrete examples in here. Yeah, that's that's great. There are many more. No, and that's what that this is now just making me more curious because this is just one thing that uh, we have tried to record here that is cheap. Then I can think of at least your public transport modes, either bus or metro, and specifically metro because it's now coming in so many cities, uh, and that is something I see as one of the interjectory points where. Some things need to be refurbished, or uh, but this is something that is still being built uh, across the city. So, what do we consider over there when we are looking at such kind of specific things? If you can just highlight few of them. Okay, in metro rail systems, and, and I've actually advised on multiple. So, in in that context, we've already spoken about streets, which become a mode of first and last mile. One of the biggest things that we will need to address in the context of metros from a gender and social inclusion perspective is the fares. And to what extent are the fares affordable for, and here I'm specifically talking about lower and middle income groups and particularly women, right? And this is also a concern that I've heard from working class uh, trans persons as well. So that's one of the biggest pieces that I think we should be assessing very carefully and exploring whether specific passes are required in order to encourage more women to use these systems. So that's one. In terms of the infrastructure, I think there are there are multiple at the stations itself. Um, when when we talk about for example, having safely lit stations, avoiding any dark corners or uh, dark corners or blind spots in the station. So there are some stations, for example, in Chennai, where the stations themselves are so vast with very few people that women spoke about feeling unsafe because it was lonely, right? So, so just how is it that you then activate these? Ensuring that the platforms have enough and sufficient seating, right? Um, and that some of it is reserved for some of the groups we've discussed because mm. in the PCAS, they get crowded out, right? Uh, by the number of people who may be waiting for, um, uh, for a train. The issue of, uh, in an, an example from Toronto is that they created dedicated waiting areas at stations, um, particularly uh, for for those who were, for uh, for women who may be traveling later in the night. So they those were better lit than the rest of the station. There was an intercom, you know, so that in case you felt unsafe, you could talk to the station manager. Uh, of course, all stations do have uh, CCTV cameras. So, but kind of making sure that if you need to speak to someone, you could do that. Multiple metro rail systems in India also have guards at the platforms, you know, in order to kind of manage the public, making sure that we have more women and other gender minorities managing the station. That can be very empowering. Mm -hmm. That can automatically create um, 
uh, you know, a feeling of, of safety as well. And we know that this has been done in Kochi Metro and it is also being done in uh, Chennai Metro, right? Having well-designed hygienic public toilets that are easily accessible. When we assessed one metro rail system, the public toilet, the toilets initially were only planned for this time so that if passengers had to use them, they had to go on a long winding route. Yeah. Right? So, and, and these are, and, and we find these differences between North and South India. In, in Southern India, the, the toilets are free. In Northern India, you have to pay. My, I would, uh, you know, and unfortunately, some of these are uh, in the paid zone. So, yeah. but I mean, they do it primarily for a maintenance purpose, but just making sure that the public toilets are easily accessible and, and, and uh, can be found. And so then so on and so forth. There are many, many other things, but these are some of them. Oh, well, it's, it's quite interesting. And this is quite an exhaustive list as well that uh, anyone can follow. And uh, so this brings me to the larger point that now a lot of things are also trying to develop around transit-oriented development. And that will also bring a lot of modes of transport coming together and again, going on the separate routes. Uh, how can those then be taken care of? I, I think some of the infra points might remain the same that you have considered in the metro. But if any additional points that you can think of which will have to be catered to this specific kind of development, what would those be? Um, I think I won't now go too much on the infrastructure side yeah. because um, many elements of transit-oriented development already talk about creating mixed-use livable uh, neighborhoods which are inherently gender-inclusive, right? Yeah. So. What are the specific aspects that we can look at? And I'm going to kind of broadly focus on two. One is, is the concern around affordable housing in TOD zones. And, and how do we prevent, I mean, it might be entirely difficult to not prevent anything, but how do we, how do we avoid complete gentrification of these neighborhoods? And one of the ways in which we can see this can be done is through upgradation of existing informal settlements so that you preserve the affordable housing stock next to a mass rapid transit station. Now, you will ask me, what does this have to do with gender? There is something called as a mobility shelter livelihoods link, um, which is very, which, which means that particularly in lower income settlements, and you can see that for uh, different women, is that due to women's predominant role in unpaid care work and unpaid domestic work, they tend to find employment closer to their home. And, and you will see that with domestic workers for sure. And we also find women more predominantly employed in the informal sector. So if these settlements get relocated because prices increase in a TOD zone, mm. then that risks women at in losing existing employment opportunities. Mm. So one of the biggest things that I would that I would say is that what does TOD mean 
in low and middle income countries like ours. Um, and I'm also drawing a little bit, Puneet, if you will, from this research that we are doing um, through the high mm-hmm. volume transport applied research program, yeah. uh, along with uh, ITDP, where we studied three low income settlements around mass rapid transit stations. Yeah. So, and, and these were different approaches. The second piece to look at from um, uh, for within TOD zones and from a gender perspective is ensuring that there are enough amenities, right? Because these amenities will then ensure that that the 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 walkable, sustainable transport oriented travel that we want will happen. So, are there enough are there enough public um, uh, anganwadis, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there are many, many other, um, are there good quality primary health centers within walking distance and so yeah. on and so forth. That, that does make sense. And somewhere I also think that it's important that in every area, all kinds of people live because then only they can cater to each other's needs as well. Otherwise, it's, it's eventually you are trying to, like, it's difficult for people to get that kind of services as well if you just have big buildings and expensive buildings in one neighborhood, at least in the country like India, I feel. Uh, otherwise, because still everything has its own layers over here. But now, so we have been discussing a lot about how future development and those things need to be taken care of. But something like present scenario, of course, how does that impact this whole equation of transport, of inequality in general? Because day in and day out, we have 50% kind of, you know, transport only will be available. You can't have more people climbing up and things like that. So that again creates another kind of question. So how, how can that be taken care of? Yeah, I think this is an interesting point because uh, we have also applied uh, uh, for a grant to specifically understand the impact that COVID had yeah. on men's mobility and particularly lower income women's mobility in Delhi. Okay. Uh, and this was at the, at the time of the first phase, um, yeah. which was from March to May in 2020, yeah. and and it was quite devastating to be to be honest. Yeah. Um, globally, we know that domestic violence increased due to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, which was a big big uh, area of concern. We also know that uh, caregiving responsibilities increased, right? Yeah. Uh, and when we looked at Delhi and, and lower income women, so these were women uh, from the urban villages of Delhi, informal settlements, um, resettlement colonies. Uh, so we, we surveyed about 800 women and these were done um, to a telephone interview, yeah. if you will. And um, one of the biggest things that we found was that uh, many of them had not earned at all during the lockdown, right? Yeah. And the majority of our, of our respondents were also domestic workers. Yeah. So about close to 40-45%. And then we also had construction workers, street vendors, and so on and so forth. Currently, they had curtailed their mobility to a point that they were only traveling for work and nothing else, yeah. right? So forget enjoying the city, forget leisure, their only mobility was for work, um, uh, and this was in December 2020. Yeah. And they were, and 
interestingly, we they did not care so much about safety from COVID as much as the waiting time for a bus, right? Or the inability to board a bus. Uh, so the impact of COVID for these lower income women was more around how could they access public transport for their livelihood purposes, which went in a disarray. And earlier, UB had some reservation of seats, right? In, in the DTC buses, about 25%. And during COVID, nothing had, you know, yeah. they just removed all of these. So, so, I mean, even if they were not being well implemented, right now there was no scope of, of requesting any kind of enforcement as well. Yeah. And just just mention a last piece, the big impact of COVID also for lower income women was that they also were relying on paratransit because, yeah. because of the lack of frequency of buses, right? Um, so that happened. Um, but for them, their existing discomfort in the use of buses had exacerbated. So it's not like the issues changed substantively. Okay, okay, that's that's uh, quite fascinating to know, and yeah, quite concerning as well because I think a lot of people had to go through that uh, kind of question in which ways it was a massive uh, wave in itself of a lot of other things apart from just COVID. So uh, coming coming to the point where uh, where we want to establish and implement this kind of things. Now, when we look at it from the angle that okay. Uh, if government needs to do this, either city, state, or national government, what kind of things can they look after? What are uh, certain things on the lines of policies that can be developed? Uh, and something like national urban transport policy is there from the national level, but how can that, uh, what do you think can be done to make sure that more and more cities and states can adapt to it? What's your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, certainly. And I think that policy has such an important role uh, to play and one of them and I must say that you know while I mean if you look at the NUTP unfortunately it is gender blind you know um, meaning that there is no specific attention to I mean I think they have many policies have very nice statements which talk about being gender inclusive but then there is nothing apart from that to say that that the policy is really looking at integrating a gender perspective more holistically. So it's a good policy, but from a gender perspective, it is insufficient, right? And so, what is it that a policy? If you had to revise this NUTP, what would you, what would one do? Is that one is you know not only focus on the vision. But then when you come down to specific measures, make sure that gender is addressed in each one of them, right? Which then, which then will, which then will, will reflect a policy that is gender inclusive. In other ways, in at city and, um, 
uh, at at the city and and uh, state levels. The other aspect that one can really do is have goals that are also gender inclusive and specific. So, like for example, what if we had a a target that aimed to increase women's share of cycling? Now that could do wonders, right? Um, what if we had a target? that aim to increase the reporting of sexual harassment in public spaces and transport. Because when you have these targets, then actions begin to align with them, right? Um, so, so let's say at the state level, in my mind, or at the national level, I'll focus on the national and the state, start with the vision, establish key concrete goals and targets, follow up through interventions where gender is integrated in each one of them. So let's say we have walking and cycling, public transport, paratransit, address gender-based violence and sexual harassment specifically. It requires its own attention and have a specific and, and very importantly, allocate budgets, dedicated budgets that will address gender actions as well uh, and, and I can give you some examples and your institutional governance. Now the governance can be in multiple ways. It can be through a cell um, or within the public transport authority, a, a gender and um, urban uh, planning expert that has a behavior change expert and has a human resource expert so that you achieve infrastructure and service integration from a gender perspective, awareness and behavior change, as well as ensure that there are sufficient number of women and other gender minorities within the organization, right? So you're looking at a, a more transformative approach. So this is what the policy can do. Um, and last is having monitoring indicators that are also gender inclusive. So that then this allows planning, implementation, monitoring and evaluation, which will then feed into the most important piece is data collection. Yeah. Yeah. I think eventually everywhere now we are moving towards data collection. And that's a pain in itself sometimes because it's yeah. there, no, there's not much data available eventually. No, but Puneet, let me give you an example, right? Because uh, you will be surprised by this. Um, we have seen examples. So the city of Bhuvneshwar is now getting gender disaggregated data at the time of issuing tickets on the MOBAS. So it's not that difficult, right? So at some point, it might be about how to, when I plan for gender at the beginning, then it doesn't seem so it doesn't seem like, oh my God, what am I, you know, yeah. what am I doing? Similar, so they, they are already doing it. Another example, um, comprehensive mobility plans prepared by cities collect household data. So they are interviewing everyone in a household. Yeah. Might be some issues with the questions, right? But that can be easily addressed. You can, you can modify and add specific gender yeah. related questions as well. But mobility plans do not report data disaggregated by gender. What if they did that? Yeah. Is this new? This process already happens. 
And that's why it might just require us perhaps to look a little bit closer to the existing data collection processes yeah. and see and see where that gap is. Maybe the gap is not even there. Yeah. And it might be more a behavior or an awareness issue. You know what I mean? That's absolutely true. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting and fascinating to see how each thing can be brought in and how it can be integrated to make sure that there is sufficient amount of consideration for every one of us who's traveling here and uh, make sure that everyone feels safe, everyone has access to it and everything. And I, I think to sum it all up, uh, I, I would like to bring up you to the last question on the lines of, now this is something which is, uh, which requires multiple thought processes as well. And if I have to look at it from skill set point of view, what do you think are some of the hard skills? I, I like to segregate it further down that some of the hard skills and the soft skills that anyone would require to be able to work on such things, planning as well as policy development. Right. So first, I would say in terms of is the awareness, and so in terms of a skill set, is to. I would recommend someone who really wants to look at uh, gender inclusive urban systems is one, understand what are the gender dimensions, gender social dimensions. Because that, because every, you will always collect, you will always conduct a gender analysis of policies. So you have to be able to look at your quantitative data and understand what is hidden in the data. But for that, you need to have a pretty good understanding of gender and urbanization in general. So that is one. Yeah. Uh, in terms of skill sets, quantitative for sure, so that you can sift and analyze the data, right? The, uh, the second one is having qualitative data collection, uh, the ability to facilitate and organize focus groups as one tool. There can be many, many other things, but qualitative research more broadly mm -hmm. to say what do statements mean? And I can give you one example, right? We were interviewing this uh, woman in, in Bananas mm -hmm. and we were trying to ask her about, about whether she faced any issue around sexual harassment. She said, and what then there are different ways you can interpret it. She said, I don't pay attention to these things, I go my way. You can say that sexual harassment doesn't exist. You can say that perhaps there is maybe a lack of acknowledgement that you don't want to talk about it in public spaces, right? And so, being able to then understand what kind of data you're getting, so qualitative and quantitative, is is what I'd say is required in both. When you're working in an urban context, I think what has worked for me, Puneet, is being an urban planner. And because I have a, a, a base in urban planning, uh, along with which I took multiple courses on on gender, I was able to bridge this gap because understand where exactly in in urban planning processes can are are we missing gender perspectives i'm i'm afraid i'm being a little too high level am i 
No, no, no. That's that's uh, that's why we have this question. It's, it's basically to have a better understanding that people can get, uh, especially our audience, which is majorly youth. So oh, good. But thank you so much. If if I have uh, left out any point that you would like to cover, I think uh, we can cover it in this segment. Um, nothing, nothing else except that. Uh, thank you for organizing this session, and. Um, uh, yeah, it would be it would be nice to see how we how we have more more perhaps uh, discussions around gender and cities as well. Absolutely, I, I do agree that I, more and more of such are required to not just awareness but also to be able to execute this in some way. So that's true. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you and understand more about uh, the perspective of how this is important and uh, it's surely quite uh, fascinating to know. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Center for Cities and Registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at C-Cube and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.